People and purpose are key drivers of performance, but are most often overlooked. The reshaping of our society is demanding a more engaged workforce to achieve on all fronts, yet most organizations often don't know how. They are forced to rethink what they stand for, the stories they tell, and how they are articulating the living on their purpose. I'm your host, Michelle Roberts, and welcome to Purpose First. Learn how top business leaders think, act, and achieve more by turning businesses into movements by putting people and purpose first. Thank you again, Rich, for being here. Great to be with you, Michelle. Look forward to the discussion. Yes, and I have um, I've actually been to Ann Arbor many times. My husband uh, grew up there. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yes, so I, uh, I've been by your office, so very excited. I uh, I remember sitting. So this is my my first impression of of, of Rich, uh, of you. And I remember sitting in the crowd as you took the stage and you opened up um, uh, at the Conscious Capitalism Conference, and you said, "At Menlo, we're all about ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, and as a purpose driven." Uh, expert and and someone that fuses those things into the people that companies they work with. I wanted to yell with excitement uh, when you <laughs> opened, um, and I wanted to say yes. A leader who starts with the why understands the power of purpose. Uh, can you share with with some of the view with with our listeners um, sort of what is Menlo's purpose? Uh, if you don't know it, <laughs> um, and at what point did you kind of realize? That that there there needed to be something bigger um, that the that your services um, were to to communicate and to be um, that would be a huge proponent in the success of Menlo. You know, a lot of this, Michelle, has to do with my personal history as a technologist. I started out writing code when I was just a little kid back in 1971. Uh, touched a computer for the first time when I was 13. It's weird to think that later this year, around September, I'll be able to declare I've been working with computers 50 years. Oh, my gosh. I just don't feel that old, but uh, somehow that has happened. Um, And, you know, my career was filled with that uh, excitement and enthusiasm of being in a growing industry that I was pretty darn good at. And I thought, wow, I can make big changes here. And and have a delightful life, you know. It's a it's a life that takes good care of my family. Uh, it, it allows me to express my creativity with the work that I was doing then, first as a programmer and later as a leader of technology teams. But in the middle of all that, I I lost heart for the profession because the results were far less than what I had uh, dreamed about, uh, and. For me, I started to recognize that despite the fact that people were, you know, promoting me and giving me raises and stock options, I thought I was failing. Uh, We were delivering poor quality. We had unhappy customers. We were firefighting from one end of the day to the other. So the, the seeds were planted for Menlo 10 to 15 years before we actually founded the company. And those seeds were first planted when I was experiencing this, what I call my personal trough of disillusionment. And as I started reading books about 
organizing, better ways to organize human beings. Because <clears throat> I found out that that was actually the hard journey. The technology stuff is difficult. It's challenging. It's, uh, you know, it can be mind bending at times. But how to organize the humans became my focus. And I realized there was a better way of doing things that was customary. So ultimately, that led to the founding of Menlo Innovations. We adopted this idea of ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology very early on. That was the purpose of the business. And we had written a, a, a mission statement that included that in it. But it wasn't until sort of 2010, I would say. We, had, we were almost 10 years old at this point. We're going to celebrate our 20th birthday this year, which is pretty darn cool. Um, and someone had who had also heard me speak had sent me Simon Sinek's uh, video on Start With Why and told me, you know what, you do a great job at this. You always start with why with what you do. And, and I listened to Sinek's talk, and I appreciated the person who sent it to me uh, complimenting me on the talks I'd given. But I had never actually ever started a talk or a tour of Menlo, which we do many, with our why. <clears throat> I would describe what we do. We're a software design and development firm. I would describe the unusual practices of pair programming, working in an open and collaborative work environment, paper-based uh, planning systems, and so on. <laughs> but eventually, maybe, every now and then, I might get to our why, but almost never. And when I saw that video from Cynic, I thought, no, this is powerful. This is important. The next tour I lead, which is going to be the next day, I am going to start with why. And then I was struggling to figure out what I was going to say. What, what would my first sentence be? And I looked back at our mission statement, and there it was, end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And I said, of course, that's our why. That's why we exist. That's what I want people thinking about us. I want everybody who walks into Menlo to leave with this word on their mind, suffering. Yeah, that's it. No, no, I don't want <laughs> suffering. You know? And so waiting at the bottom of our mission statement, like a gift, we had written this back in 2001 was this sentence that I'd never paid that much attention to. That our goal since our founding in 2001 is to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. And I thought, there it is. Thank you. It's right there. It's been there all along. I was sort of like Dorothy with the red flippers, <laughs> you know. And so these people came in. I greeted them and I said, welcome to Menlo. You have come to a place that has very intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. Now, let me tell you, the look on their faces was <laughs> unreal, right? They were like, Rich, we're here to learn about Menlo and your unusual practices and see how it works. Why are you talking about joy? And I pointed back to the room behind me and I said, we're going to take a walk back there and see all those people, but pretend for a moment you are actually bringing a software project to us to work on. And pretend for some odd cultural reason, half of that room has joy and the other half doesn't. Which half do you want working on your project? And they said, well, we want the joyful half, of course. 
I said, why? What difference would it make? Why would you care? And it immediately came back. I said, well, they'd care more about the outcome. They'd, they'd be more dedicated to the task. They'd bring more energy to work. They'd be easier to work with. I said, awesome. So you're with me. There is, in fact, tangible business value to joy. Now, I'm going to take you back, show you how we do what we do. And anywhere you see us doing something or not doing something, uh, I can draw a short straight line back to joy. And that really began my purpose-driven journey uh, around about 2010. Wow, that's powerful. And did you notice the shift very quickly with the the people that you were bringing through the office? Oh, it was crazy how fast this took off. <laughs> uh, I started giving talks on this subject, uh, keynotes, uh, much like the one you saw. And I appreciate your commentary. That was a special day for me because... I learned that day, I don't know if I shared this with the crowd, that my oldest daughter was pregnant with twins. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They are, now, I do they are now just over a year old, and it's been a delightful addition to the family. So talk about family joy. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. So I will always remember Rochester, New York, <laughs> uh, with, that, uh, with that moment. Um, oh, that's great. But that's I great. gave a talk on joy at a conference in phoenix arizona shortly after that uh, revelation i guess and it was the lean conference uh the asq conference american society for quality conference on lean and six sigma now i'm guessing you'll hear that and like boy that sounds a little dry and it might have been a pretty pretty serious crowd with the uh, uh ties and pencil protectors and all that sort of thing <clears throat> um I gave this talk and they literally rushed the stage afterwards to take every brochure, every business card and everything. I ran out immediately. It was amazing to see the reactions people were getting. I clearly touched a nerve with this theme, this purpose, this idea. That's amazing. That's great. And, and I know it's, it's one thing to kind of declare the purpose and to really, you know, be you're able to tie every, customer interaction, every, um, you know, team member interaction to joy. Um, how was it to, you know, how, what did it take to really embed that idea of joy into the everyday culture, um, in the organization? You know, my business card has two titles on it, CEO and chief storyteller. And I think as a leader, the act of storytelling is probably one of our most important acts. Uh, as I say in my second book, uh, storytelling is what connects us from, from heart to mind, from spirit to body, from concept to reality. You know, a, a leader can stand up in front of a team and put up a chart, put up a spreadsheet, put up some numbers, put up percentages. None of that inspires like a story does. Stories are personal. Stories inspire people to work on things that are bigger than themselves. I love this old Native American proverb, tell me the facts and I'll learn, tell me the truth and I'll believe, but tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. Yes, I am familiar with that one. Yep. So that's, uh, I think that's the job of leaders is to make it personal, uh, to reconnect the team continuously to the story because look every business 
especially right now, is in tough times. You know, it's hard work, whatever we do in the world. Uh, we have to try and keep our spirit and energy high when we go to work every day. Sometimes we lose sight of that purpose. Sometimes we forget why we're here. Sometimes we lose sight of what our personal goal is in our own career. And that was certainly happening for me way back in my earlier career days before starting Menlo. Yeah, I think it's important that people understand that it's an ideal to strive to live toward. It's not something that just happens. It has to be intentional and something that you work toward every day. Not every day is going to have a ton of that idealistic um, purpose in it. Um, but acknowledging that, you know, tomorrow we will do better or there, there is, you know, a plan in place that we can, we can implement that um, an embedded purpose into it. Absolutely. And then, you know, it should be present, whatever your purpose is, you should be able to see evidence of it in your practices, your processes, your, uh, your HR practices, for example, how do you recruit? How do you interview? How do you select? How do you onboard? How do you promote? Yeah. All of those things should be connected to your purpose. Yeah. Can you give, um, can you give an example of maybe one of those things of how you put purpose into practice? Absolutely. Um, so our belief is we cannot produce the kind of work we do uh, without the fundamental principle of teamwork. Now, if you boil down teamwork, uh, true teamwork, not an org chart, like this is my team, you know, I look <laughs> at these boxes and see all the people who report to me kind of thing, but rather, are we operating truly as a team? Uh, teamwork is is built on collaboration. Collaboration is built on relationships. Relationships are built on trust. And trust is built on spending time together. And it's actually a fairly simple formula. And if we do that every day and we make it a focus of our interviewing practices and our selection practices, we have a chance to foster a culture that takes care of itself. It's not that easy, of course. I mean, there's still uh, things you have to work on, but boy, you're, you're setting yourself up for success if you do this. So for example, here at Menlo, um, we work in pairs, two people, one computer, sharing a keyboard and a mouse all day long. Now, pandemic times, we've gone to virtual pairing, but we're still using this construct. It's not Hey, Michelle, come help me with my work. This is our work done together, much like you and I are collaborating on this recording. And at Menlo, then, you can imagine that the interpersonal connections between people is critically important. We often have visitors come in and on tours. We do virtual tours now, so your audience can come see us from wherever they are in the world for free and without a flight in a hotel room. Um, <laughs> And people often ask, how do you find people that like to work like this? That's a great question, right? And so we have a different kind of interview practice. What we do is we bring in people in mass, 30, 40, 50 people at a time. We pair one candidate with another. Pretty unusual kind of audition. We give them something to work on, and then we give them the weirdest instructions ever. <laughs> we say, you know, Michelle, you're, you're paired with, you know, this person who's competing for the same position you are. 
You're both in this interview together, but Michelle, your job is to help the person sitting next to you get a second interview. Make your pair partner look good. What we're seeking in this particular audition is evidence of good kindergarten skills. Do you play well with others? Do you not have to dominate the conversation? And of course, you can imagine most candidates who've never worked in an environment like Menlo, their brains are now twisting in the wind. They're like, whoa, 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 wait, I want the second interview, huh? Make your pair partner look good. Help them succeed. If they're struggling, reach out to them. If they're nervous, we're going to watch and see if you use humor to settle them down a little bit. Do you make it just enough personal that they feel comfortable and you can dive into the work and get something done in the next 20 minutes? Then we switch the pairs to see if you can do this with different kinds of personalities. We do that three times and then send you all home. Didn't ask you any questions, just simply observed how you work with other human beings. Well, what are we really doing in this interview? We are beginning the process of teaching our culture from the moment of first contact. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not about the job. It's about something bigger. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Uh, what is the... What's the feedback or, you know, what, what are people saying when they walk out? <laughs> We've had some really interesting feedback. Um, there was one person who said, you know what? I don't even care if I get the job. The interview alone changed my life. It's like, wow. I know you, you don't get that from interviews very often. Uh, my, my old style of interviewing was two people sitting across the table lying to each other for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> right, putting on your best, your best face forward. And <laughs> yep, exactly. And you know, and and part of it then is you know, then who gets selected? And the, and the the really the amazing moment of that interview practice. I mean, it's fun to watch. Number one, we actually have visitors come and just watch our interview practices. Uh, but the really powerful part is after all the candidates leave. Let's say there were thirty of them. There would have been 15 Menlonians who had been watching these pairs and taking notes about each person that they saw. And then, you know, we, we do these interviews from about four in the afternoon till six. And then six o'clock, we bring in pizza and pop. We sit down around a table with all the people who observed the candidates and we talk about each one of them. And what we talk about is based on what we saw. We talk about our values. We talk about how the people we saw are, were operating consistent with the values that we hold dear to our hearts. But what's, I think, more powerful is as they're walking through each candidate, as they're exploring what went well and what didn't, there is a lot of self-reflection by each person who sat through that. They might say, oh, yeah, I, I do that don't I? I got to get better at that, right? I mean, it's it's such an interesting thing to have your team deeply explore their values with each other while evaluating the people they want to join our tribe. Wow, that's remarkable. And how does that really, how does that impact Menlo at its core? You know, what it creates is this idea that translates all the way out through our purpose. Uh, and our purpose is externally focused. We talk about two central questions to any company's purpose, and that is look outside yourselves, look outside the business, and ask yourself two fundamental questions about your company's purpose. Who do we serve, and what would delight look like for them? Well, it begins in that 
preparing. It begins in those interview steps. We should be looking to support others. I love the basic concept of improv theater that says, when you step onto the stage of Menlo, your mindset should be, I am the least important person here. My job is to help everyone around me succeed. That translates right out to our customers. Wow, sounds like it has a dramatic impact then on the not just the culture, but how you help your customers and of course how you know how much really success is is really out there because of you, because of the organization and how it impacts the world. And I think it goes home with our team as well. I think, uh, you know, at least in my old life, uh, I wasn't always saying the nicest things about the place I worked, the job I had, the work I was doing, and I probably came home frustrated. And even if I didn't say it at the dinner table with my kids listening, they could probably feel it. I think when you create an environment like we've created, people go home inspired. They talk about the fact that they love their jobs, that they love what they do. Yes, it's hard work and maybe we had a tough day today, but it's all for a worthy goal, a worthy purpose. Yeah. And I, I know for a fact that it, that actually increases productivity. I mean, up to even 40, 30%, something like that in some cases. It's, it's not hard it's to imagine, right? If you're not carrying this burden in your head about, you know, who's out to get me here? Uh, how do I get ahead of this colleague? Um, you know, how do I make myself look good even though things are going poorly here? Uh, you know, if, if that's what's consuming people, consuming people's attention, uh, at work, they're, they're probably not going to have a very productive day on focusing on the things you really need them to do to, to delight your customers, yeah. to serve others. Absolutely. So in, in what ways have you, cause I know there's, um, you put people, put people first in a lot of different ways, um, in building Menlo. Can you give us an example of maybe a specific way that you've done this that's translated? Well, it's interesting if you look at our basic practices of Menlo to serve our customers and serve the people we in, intended to light. Uh, we have a very uniquely named and uniquely organized practice at Menlo we call high-tech anthropology. And uh, a lot of people look at us funny like, what? And yes, we have people on our team whose business cards say high-tech anthropologist Menlo Innovations. Well, what does anthropology have to do with software? Well, everything, really. You have to understand the people you intend to serve. The way you do that is go see them in their native environment. Observe them, uh, their vocabulary, their goals as human beings. Now, our purpose in doing that, that connects to our broad purpose, is to delight them one day with the software we create so that they're not frustrated by it, that it works the way they intend to work, it uses the words they use in their everyday lives. Intriguingly, those people do not pay us for what we do. They are the ultimate end users of the software we're creating. Those people do not actually know who we are because the software we build for other businesses typically is private labeled by those businesses. So we'll meet them in small numbers in order to understand their world. But when the software gets released and it, the, the people who are using the software are delighted by it rather than tortured by it, 
we start to hear the thank yous coming back from them, either through our customers or anecdotally, if they do find out we were the ones responsible for it. And that brings joy back to our team. That's where, that's where the rubber, the joy rubber meets the road. When we start getting the anecdotal evidence that we have thrilled the end users of the software we've created, the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds, sometimes over years, and that mm -hmm. feedback starts coming back, that brings joy to our team. Wow, you're like the undercover agents of, of joy. <laughs> yeah, we're like undercover bosses, right? <laughs> yeah. Every one yeah. of those episodes always ends in tears, so tears of joy. Yes, oh, I've been there many times. <laughs> um, so, you know, this has all been a really great conversation. And again, I appreciate your time with this. Um, I'm curious as to if you'd be willing to share maybe one of your biggest challenges or failures when it came to, when it comes to kind of putting, when it has come to be um, putting purpose in people first and sort of what, what did you learn from that? I know it's not Menlo Babies because that's a success. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that is a great success. You know, this is, it, Michelle, this is not magical. It is simply hard work done well together over a long period of time. And there are setbacks. There are times where I'm not the best leader I could be. Uh, I tell one story in uh, Chief Joy Officer where I you know, kind of chastised one of our employees uh, for not knowing something that I thought he should have known. And he was, he was relatively new to the company. Um, fortunately for him, he was with a very senior colleague and, uh, you know, and when Matt said to me, you know, I, I don't know to an answer the question I asked him, I kind of said, you know, in my CEO way, well, Matt, I'd expect you to know those kind of things. That's what our customers would expect to know. And I would expect to know it. And they both kind of looked at me funny and uh, walked away and said, okay, I'll, we'll come back with the answer. Well, the next day, his pair partner, Tracy, who had been a senior member of the team uh, for quite some years, pulled me aside in the morning. She looked me in the eye and she said, are you okay? And I looked at her and I said, this is about la yesterday, isn't it? She goes, yeah, that was very unusual for you. And she said, I just wanted to check in with you, see if you're okay. Now, that's what we teach our team to do when they're in conflict with another person on the team, to check in with the human first before you check in on the conflict issue. Absolutely. You never know what's going yep. on. And so, yeah, I didn't. And I told her, I said, yeah, I didn't handle that very well. Now, the beautiful thing about that minute, Matt walked in the front door for his work day that morning. Matt had only been with us a few months at that point. And I signaled him over. I said, hey, Matt, come on over here. Have a seat. And he sat down. And I said, Matt, that thing that happened yesterday, I just want to say I'm sorry. And without flinching, without hesitation, he immediately responded. He said, and I forgive you. Yeah. Wow. It, what powerful. a humbling moment for me to be taught such a lesson from one of the newest members of our team. That, in fact, there can be compassion all around, even for a CEO that had a dumb moment. And so... You know, those are that's a, a you know a, a small moment in our history, and there have been other challenges like that. Of course, uh, I want to let everybody in your audience know that um, I'm as human as everybody else, and and I still have work to do on me. I think that's um, you know 
leadership. That's the core of leadership. And you're so humble um, and you're so transparent and honest about, you know, the things that you've been able to overcome and then, you know, embedded in the organization and your people are demonstrations of your leadership. So uh, it's, I, I commend Thank you. you. <laughs> so what advice would you give a business leader who wants to take their organization maybe to the next level when it comes to their purpose and um, people? You know, I think the, the, the easiest place to pinpoint a starting spot is actually the hardest place to start. And it's got to be in your own heart. When I began this journey, and it happened for me in earnest back in the middle 90s, um, I had to become a different kind of leader. I had to stop trying to be the smartest person in the room, which is probably what got me all my promotions. I had to start trusting the people around me and, uh, you know, and, and not trying to grab all the attention for myself, not trying to be answer man to everybody. I remember I took my eight-year-old daughter to work with me. I think I probably told you the story in my talk in Rochester. And, you know, she, she sat there at my task table for the day. It was one of those take your children to work days. And at the end of the day, I asked her, so Sarah, she was, remember, she's eight at the time. She was watching her VP dad work all day. And I said, so what'd you think, honey? What did you learn today? And she said, what I learned is you're really important here. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, nobody here can answer a question without asking you first. And she was really <laughs> proud of me. I was instantly mortified because I realized in that moment I had built a hero-based organization and I was the number one hero. The only way to scale that kind of organization is to scale the heroes. And the only way to scale the heroes is overtime. And I'm looking across the table at this eight-year-old thinking to myself, I don't want to miss the best parts of being a dad. And so I had to make the change. So my encouragement to your listeners, the ones who are maybe frustrated in the environment is start with you. Become the change you want to see around you. Uh, bring a more positive attitude. You know, smile. Get to know the people around you, not as colleagues, but as human beings. Uh, that will start to translate into, um, uh, you know, attitude changes in those around you. It's infectious. And if you're not a reader, become one. There are lots of great books. Those, those were the places I found teachers who are in authors and books that inspired me. If you, if you have another leader in your life that you really admire, ask them what books they're reading. Try them out. See if you like them. If they, if you don't just set them aside, they're not for you right now. That's okay. Nothing wrong with you, but just become and a student if, again. And, um, what are some of those best books that you'd recommend? You know, it, for me, uh, the most powerful book I've read in probably the last decade is by, uh, the Arbinger Institute in Salt Lake City. It is called Leadership and Self-Deception. And wow, get ready. You know, uh, you'll be emotionally wrung out. You'll be convicted, uh, in both the positive way and negative way, uh, that you do need to change and it is change is possible. Uh, if you, if you follow so, those with the anatomy of peace and the outward mindset, both from Arbinger Institute as well, uh, you will be on a pretty darn good trajectory if you take those lessons to heart. That's wonderful. Yeah. It sounds like it's, Starts with this, with your yes, soul. It, does. it starts with really understanding your story and how you 
want to be known and sort of how can you take that inside of what's going on inside and really translate it outside so it's it's, it's meaningful um and having the right people around you so <laughs> and uh thank you again rich for being on here um how can people come to follow menlo and your journey and ending human suffering <laughs> yeah and on social media i'm known as menlo m-e-n-l-o prez p-r-e-z so you can check me out on twitter and uh, uh, linkedin for example those are the places i spend most of my time uh social media wise uh you can write me an email if you want r sheridan at menlo innovations.com ask me questions um Obviously, there's the books out there that you can read the deeper story of uh, of how we did this and why it matters. And then come visit us. Uh, go on to a, a Menlo Innovations website. Click on the link on the homepage called Tours. Uh, we, do th we do one to three tours a day uh, and about three free tours a week. So you can just come observe and, and interact with me and team members uh, about why this works as well as it does. Awesome. So is there a third book coming out? <laughs> Boy, um, give me a break. I've been busy trying to rescue our company during pandemic time. Um, you know, I've, I've written some good blog posts of late um, that have been really fun because I love to write. And I'll send you a link to one that uh, has been pretty popular. It kind of tells our story during pandemic times. I'm The next book will go in one of two directions. Um, and uh, it's just uh, uh, roiling around in my head now uh, at the moment. Um, there could be Joy Inc. 2, how we rebuilt a workplace people love, because uh, Menlo is very different now, as you can imagine, uh, given the pandemic. And, I, and we will have gone through, I think, permanent changes from what we've experienced. There's been a lot of positives that have come out of this and a lot of new beliefs formed. Um, but there's another one where, uh, well, you probably, you saw it in my talk in Rochester where I began comparing the forces at work on a human organization to the forces at work on an airplane. You know, the lift of human energy, yep. weight of bureaucracy, the thrust, thrust of purpose and the drag of fear. And that has become yep. really uh, powerful and popular. And there's a whole book hiding just behind that metaphor. Oh, wow. Wonderful. For the tour. I can't wait. Thanks, Michelle.